Hello, welcome to God Forbid. Great to have your company this week as we go down the religious road less travelled. Witchcraft and Wicca, sorcery and Satanism, paganism and the occult. Are these beliefs dangerous as for centuries they were thought to be? In the 21st century, are they irrelevant? Well, if they're irrelevant, how do you explain the fascination with one wizard in particular? You're a wizard, Harry. I'm a what? A wizard and a thumping good one, I'd wager, once you trade up a little. No, you've made a mistake. I mean, I can't be a, a, a wizard. Oh, yes, you can. The Harry Potter brand is worth $25 billion. To think J.K. Rowling was the first author to make $1 billion. And we're not just wild about Harry. In popular culture, we love witches. You remember the Wicked Witch of the West? You, my pretty, and your little dog too. <laughs> what did the dog do? Spoiler alert, Dorothy in The Wizard of Oz ends up killing that witch by pouring a bucket of water on her. Now, that's the G-rated version. Suspected witches have traditionally faced crueler deaths and unfair trials. Here's police chief Wiggum to explain the process. He suspects Marge Simpson is a witch. Okay, here's how the process works. You sit on the broom and we shove you off the cliff. What? Well, hear me out. If you're innocent, you will fall to an honorable Christian death. If, however, you are the bride of Satan, you will surely fly your broom to safety. At that point, you will report back here for torture and beheading. Tough but fair. Stop! Doesn't the Bible say, judge not lest ye be judged? <laughs> the Bible says a lot of things. Shove Ah, there's no justice quite like mob justice. And there is no end to the different ways we're culturally fascinated by witchcraft. There's the comedy, the children's books and film, the TV series like Sabrina and Bewitched, the hit musical Wicked, and of course, the horror movies like Rosemary's Baby from 1968. What have you done to him, you maniac? Satan is his father, not Guy. He came up from hell and begat a son of mortal woman. Hail Satan! Hail Satan! Satan is his father, and his name is Adrian. Hail Adrian! Hail Satan! Hail Satan! That sounds just like an ABC editorial meeting. Now, that was Satanists with Mia Farrow in Roman Polanski's film Rosemary's Baby. And that brings us to our expert panel. David Garland is a pagan. In fact, he's a high priest of paganism. For 20 years, he's been president of the Australian Pagan Awareness Network, and he's represented paganism as a delegate to the United Nations Interfaith Council. He's a pagan's pagan, you could say. David Garland, welcome to God Forbid. Thank you. Marguerite Johnson is Professor of Ancient History at Newcastle University. She's written four books, dozens of articles and chapters. She speaks fluent Latin and ancient Greek and specialises in witchcraft and magic in antiquity. Marguerite, welcome. Thank you. Now, let's begin as we do each week on God Forbid. We ask the panel their religious story, if indeed it exists. So, Marguerite, you first. I was raised a Catholic in a very big traditional Catholic family taught by nuns and Maris brothers. As I hit my teenage years, I began to question the faith and now I would regard myself as an agnostic. 
but you were drawn and fascinated with myths and legends and folk beliefs. That passion that I have has always been with me as a child. I was fascinated with magic and witchcraft and mythology. And I'm just very lucky to be one of those people who now gets paid for following the passion she had as a child. Wonderful. And when you say magic, you don't mean rabbit out of a hat, card tricks on stage. Absolutely not. It's the practice of magic in antiquity, the process of contacting supernatural forces and supersensual forces in the universe to affect change. And do you believe these things are possible or are you just studying them as a cultural and historical phenomenon? Predominantly, I study them as a historical and cultural phenomenon, but I'm open I see you nodding, David. You were brought up a Catholic. Yes, born and raised Roman Catholic. Was head altar boy for many years, left the church at 14. Why? Um, I started asking questions that I couldn't get answers for about graven images and idol worship. I said to the priest, I said, where in the Bible does it say Christ is five foot seven, brown hair and blue eyes? And where is that in the Bible? It's not. But on the wall, there he was. And the priest, they didn't have any answers. And I said, and every Easter you would wash his feet we would all queue up and kiss his feet and go back to our stalls. So that's idol worship. And he said, I think it's time that you left. Really? <laughs> yes, and that was it. And I never went back. So I then studied every religion I could get my hands on. Because you looked at Buddhism, Hinduism, Islam, Seventh-day Adventism. Yes. What were unsatisfactory about well, those? All of those things to me, it came back to having to have faith in something that wasn't tangible. You have to believe that there's something out there that has our best interests at heart that we can't see, touch, smell, taste. And paganism doesn't have that? Well, equinoxes and solstices and full moons and dark moons and the sun rising and setting and Stonehenge and these things are tangible. I can look at that and go, 100%, this is real. We know when the moon is going to be full. That's right. We know where the stones are in Stonehenge. And, and why they're set that way. So for summer and winter solstice, the sun will rise in a particular spot. To me, that's real. Your Italian grandmother had a role in what, moving you away from... Well, no, my uh, Italian grandmother right up till the day of her death was still a good Roman Catholic. However, she read palms. We stopped playing poker with my grandmother because she was reading our cards from the discards of the first hand. You thought you were playing poker and she yes. was in fact predicting your future? Well, seeing where we're at. I predict you're going to lose this hand, well, that kind of thing. <laughs> But she was mainly checking our welfare. And then she would do the Inocchio, the, the oil and the olive, the, all of the old traditions. You know, Italy was one of those countries that didn't lose a lot of their traditions. The old strega, um, the Italian witchcraft and Italian witch. Just like the Greeks with the evil eye, still practiced to this day. Most European countries have something along those lines and, and still have it in play. And she, right up till the day she died, my grandmother sat up three minutes past the new moon, said goodbye to my grandfather and laid down. Now, in Italian tradition, the new moon is when Aradia descends from the heavens to collect the souls of those that have died. So it's perfect timing. And when my grandfather died many years later, he sat up, talked to somebody who wasn't there, laid down the door, slammed, and he was gone. So there was a nice connection between the two. Now, David and Marguerite, is it true that there are two opposite but equally unflattering views of these non-mainstream religions? One says... You know, it's silly, it's make it up as you go along. And the other says it's in fact real but evil and it's ungodly and, and has at worst the devil's hand at work. Are these the two ideas that you're confronted with, David? Unfortunately, I've experienced it. The late 80s and 90s, when I first came out, 
what we call the broom closet um, <laughs> and, and started doing public activities. I, I was receiving death threats. I did have my car messed with. I was sacked from jobs. I had letters sent to my employers. And what prompted me to come out and do what I was doing was what was happening in America. They were having houses burned and stuff like that happening in the Bible belts in America. Seriously, and, who, who was doing this in Australia and America? Well, Australia, it wasn't as bad, but in America, there were people dying. And that's what inspired me to start PAN, Pagan Awareness Network, in Australia, to ensure that our politicians were aware and this didn't happen. And luckily, it, it's never really got as bad as that. But you did get death threats. Yeah, I, I was getting them quite regularly for a period of time there. I, I don't get them anymore, <clears throat> luckily. Who from? Well, we never knew. What did you think might be the motivation for such a to thing? To stop me. To stop me from educating the public, from bringing it into light, to dispelling those myths from the 2,000 years of bad PR that we had after the change of religious power in, in Constantinople, when it went from paganism to Christianity. That's when the books were chosen, our gods were demonised, and it started there. We burnt our share of Christians. We can't say one religion's worse than any other. Each religion does what it does to other religions. It's just part of the nature of religions. Marguerite, are you surprised to hear about death threats towards David? No, not really. I think there is a fear associated with any form of non-mainstream belief. And when you consider the backlash today against the Muslim community, there is a fear of the other. And people are capable of all sorts of things when they're sufficiently frightened. Well, I don't understand about witchcraft and Wicca and paganism. There's much to learn, so let's get stuck into a little segment we call Please Explain. Please Marguerite, what is witchcraft? Witchcraft today encompasses a whole lot of different pockets of people who practice beliefs in usually a multiplicity of gods and goddesses and you will practice magic to effect change in the world. Do you mean cast spells? Cast spells. One thing that unites practitioners of witchcraft, magic, neo-paganism, Wicca, the occult, is a belief that the air is animated with forces, the ocean, the trees. And if you can undertake certain practices and rituals, you open yourself up to be able to communicate with those forces. Can you give some examples of spells which have evolved, passed down over centuries? I think that... Binding spells is something I still see magic practitioners being involved with today. The recent universal spell to bind Donald Trump that was initiated by witches mostly in the Western world earlier this year where they all got together and devoted their energies and powers into binding Donald Trump to affect change. What does so it mean, binding? Binding is creating a psychic connection to you. Witches and pagans who did the binding ritual for Donald Trump, were attempting to bind him so they could influence him to do good as opposed to evil. Now, the witches of the opinion that uh, the spell has worked? They've been a bit quiet on the outcome of it. I would suggest it hasn't worked <laughs> following the news <laughs> of late. <laughs> the spells, does it involve a cauldron and a eye of newt and... The stereotype? Oh, the stereotype is the stereotype that's come from literature and fantasy novels and depends on what you want to do. You, you will have ritual 
ingredients and ritual elements and some of them are quite often secretive that the magician only knows about them. There's certain ingredients in spells. They may have code names so you never know what they are. Spells are quite like recipes. Add this, do that, stir this, make that, certainly in the ancient world. David, the black witch's hat and the flying on the broomstick, are these things totally fictitious? They have no part in the history of paganism and witchcraft? They actually have a big part because the pointy hats, that was fashion, just what people were wearing at the time. And the problem was pagans, those of the land, would find out the changes in fashion much after those in the court who were in the the castles or the, the manors and whatever. So they'd all gone through their pointy hat phase and they'd thrown them all out and us commoners out on the land started wearing them because it was new to us. Is it like flares in the 70s? Just like flares and corduroy. That's where that came from. And the, the broom is actually real. There are rituals where coming into the growing seasons, coming into spring, where you would dance around the fire on your broom, jumping in the air to show the crops how high to grow. People who didn't know what was happening said, oh, look at those witches with their pointy hats flying on brooms. Do you cast spells? Yes. Do you, like, have someone you don't like and you cast a spell to give them bad luck? Most pagans, most witches live by a law of karma. Um, As a Wiccan, I I have a reed that I live by, which is do as that will as long as it harm none. So it makes it a little bit hard for me to hurt people. Mm. But being honest, knowing how to heal someone you know how to hurt them. It's the same side as the coin. We're human. Nobody is all good. Nobody is all bad. We all have bits of bits. So I try and do as much as I can that's good for everybody for the odd day where I might not. Give an explanation of the different categories of witchcraft and wicker. You have Gardner and Alexandrian. Who are the founders of Gardnerian and Alexandrian? So Gerald Gardner is the founder of, of modern wicker. He and Doreen Valiente constructed what we now know as modern Wicca. Alex Saunders started the Alexandrian tradition, and they're the two main Wiccan traditions. And they're both modern in origin. Modern in origin. But they go back to ancient Egypt, Greek, Roman, Celt, The roots are much, much older, because I am a Gardnerian. I stick with Gardner as the founder, and he's brought everything together from all the other uh, traditions around the world. And then you've got solitaries. Now, out of the 30-odd thousand people who put in the census that they were pagan. In Australia. In Australia. 36,000 people said they were nature-based. Now, of those, probably 75% are solitaries. So they've only worked by themselves, very rarely worked with anybody else. And our religion in its very nature, that's where it comes from. One, every village had a wise woman and a cunning man. There wasn't 15 of them that came together on the festival to dance around and do whatever. There was one of each and their student. Who would take over? Who would take over when they died. Fascinating. And then they would take on another apprentice. And parts of that has been brought into modern paganism. Like for people to be Gardnerian, they need to be trained one-on-one. So I take on a student, but that's a lifetime commitment. So my family increases by one member. Now, you're the boss, but were you elected or is there like a clergy hierarchy structure? As far as the network is concerned, um, I've been president for nearly 21 years and that is an incorporated association, so we're bound by the New South Wales laws and that is an elected position. As it, far as it's my, kind of cheapens 
ancient paganism does well, it, having to comply with New South Wales incorporation law? We did it on purpose because it gives us a foot in with the government. So if I need to get in and argue about freedom of religion or I need to get in and argue about the Pretending to Witchcraft Act in Victoria, which made our practice illegal. The I witch? Been, the Pretending I mean, to Witchcraft. I mean, pardon the pun. <laughs> the Pretending to Witchcraft Act in Victoria. The Pretending? What? That's what the act was actually called. Part of the Vagrancy Act. Any form of divination, enchantment, conjuration or sorcery was punishable by 12 months in jail or a $500 fine. 1889 was when the law was written. And it's still on the books? No, we killed it in 2005, but it took a long time. Wow. And so, have you seen uh, a, an upswing in evil spells being cast next to vagrants in the public spaces? <laughs> no. <laughs> so the worst fears of the legislators did not come to fruition. That, it's very true. David Garland, the Pagan Awareness Network, has come out in favour of same-sex marriage. Marriage equality. Yes, we have, because it's a human right. Are there some conservative pagans in your organisation, though, who believe in traditional marriage between a witch and a warlock? Well, a witch and a witch. Um, yes, and there are. Really? And, and, well, in the very nature of our religion, it's about fertility. So there are some hardline traditionalists who think that a coven should be run by a priest and a priestess, and that causes the same issue. Now, you corrected me when I said warlock. Warlock is not a male witch at all. Uh, a male witch is a witch. That's um, right. What is a warlock, and why were you accused of being one? Well, warlock, its origins are Wolga, which is Scottish, which is Oathbreaker. And when I first came out and started to get involved in the public arena to correct the misinformation on paganism and witchcraft, one of the oaths you take when you become a witch is dare to be silent. And that means that you can only discuss information to a person who is properly prepared in a circle. So discussing our traditions outside of that led some of the same traditional people who believe that there should be a male and a female in a circle only to get very unhappy with me. Um, and, and I was branded as, a, as an oath breaker back in the late 80s. A badge of honour? I wear it very proudly now, yes. And, and those people have come around because of the things that have happened, the legislation that potentially affects how we can practice our religion, like the knife laws in each state in, in, in Australia. Well, why is that related to paganism? Well, we have ritual tools. And our thame, one of our main ritual tools, is a double-edged blade. Now, a double-edged blade is a prohibited weapon. So <laughs> in New South Wales, we made sure there was a provision for religious practice. So I can carry my double-edged blade in a box in the boot of my car to ritual and from ritual without a problem. And presumably Sikhs can carry their ceremonial the Same people. Dagger. When we got into the submissions to the government, they're the people we, we worked with, the Sikhs and the Scots, because they use their ritual sword to cut their haggises and stuff like that. And every state has different laws. We missed out in Northern Territory, same in WA, so they're prohibited in both those states. So stuff like that. Marriage was another one we got involved in, and we've been involved recently in, in burial rites because there's certain members of our community who want to be burnt in a particular way rather than in a crematorium. You mean out in the open or something? That type of stuff, you know, the boat with Viking shoot arrows, all of that exciting stuff. They're, they're... I hope you lose that one. Well, we, we didn't get that one. Everybody just take a look at the Ganges to see how that went wrong. RN, God forbid, we're with David Garland, a high priest pagan from the Pagan Awareness Network. We're with Professor Marguerite Johnson, an expert in ancient history, classical languages at Newcastle University. David, how often do you cast a spell? The act of walking into a church and lighting a candle before you sit down and pray, that's a spell. 
And then there are, there are set times where I will deliberately go and cast a spell for an outcome. What typically might that be? For people who have passed, like if we have someone who has crossed over, I will often light a candle for them that night to help them cross to the Summerland um, or whatever resting place that person believed in because there's so many based on your religious beliefs. But I will also do spells if someone is sick. I will do a healing spell, obviously with their permission. We can also do things to create change in our life. And do you use objects to make spells? Well, it all depends on that level of the spell because for us, a thought is magic. So I've thought it. That energy ripple in my brain has caused energy ripples into the universe. It's off, it's going. To amplify that, I'll speak. To make that even bigger, I will do ritual. Use objects, use tools, mix oils with objects. What objects? What tools? We have a set of standard tools that we use on our altar. So I have a bowline, which is the knife that I cut things with. I have an athame that is a blade that's never used to cut anything. It's used to direct energy. I have a wand, I have a cup, and I have a pentacle. They're representations of the elements. The pentacle represents earth or money. The cup is relationships or water. And the wand, this is where it gets contentious. So the wand and the sword, traditionally, the wand is fire and the sword is air. But in my tradition, we've swapped them because wands grow from air and swords are forged in fire. So we've swapped them around and that's part of the modern paganism and how it ever grows. Like in my tradition, it's handwritten. So when I was taken on as a student, every Tuesday night I would go to my high priestess's house, sit in the corner of the lounge room and write from her book of shadows into mine. And I had to write it verbatim, including spelling mistakes, including grammar mistakes, verbatim into mine. And the law was the text can never be changed, but you can add to it. So all my experiences are added to my book, which came from my teacher, which had all of her experiences, and my students will copy mine, including my experiences, and add theirs. Marguerite, I bet that will evoke in you some sadness because so much from antiquity, there wasn't a written record like that. Well, a magic in antiquity, most of the written tradition, such as the Greek magical papyri, a huge collection of spells that was unearthed in Egypt 150 years ago, we know that these were written by professional magicians and we know that they were male because women had very limited access to writing. There is another tradition, far more vulnerable, fragile and equally as fascinating, which was the oral tradition in the hands of women who practised different types of magic. Attraction spells to make someone fall in love with a woman, issues of contraception, childbirth. And there is also the tradition of the root cutters. And the root cutters were uneducated peasant stock, itinerant people who moved around but knew when herbs and different plants were growing and when they should be harvested. And that tradition and all of the knowledge, all is lost. We have traces in texts such as Hippocrates's medical writings and in other types of ancient written material, but I don't think we'll ever capture that full, beautiful folk knowledge that those people had. David, so what are the big holidays for pagans, the big events, the Yom Kippur's, the Easter's, the Christmas? Well, in the Southern Hemisphere, we've moved them. So they don't match up with where they are in the Northern Hemisphere. So, for- And that's amazing, isn't it? Because it occurred to me, if you're a professional ski instructor pagan, you'd have one 
festival twice a year, even though it's supposed to be once a year, and you'd have the other one not at all. I'd be very happy with that, to do Yule twice a year, which is our equivalent of Christmas. And it was the 21st to 23rd of December in the Northern Hemisphere, June on our side. We have uh, summer solstice, which is the longest day of the year. We have the two equinoxes, day and night are equal. They're my favourite times. And then you have Beltane, which is the, or the May fires, which is the fertility festivals. You've got Samhain or Halloween or Samhain. Mm-hmm. And then you have Lunasad and Imbolc, which are both harvest festivals. And what are some of the things you do during these festivals? I work with the Holly King and the Oak King and the Goddess is Eternal. So on the equinoxes, the kings will fight. So the Holly King and the Oak King will fight and one is maimed and goes off and dies and is reborn at the solstice. So the Holly King is in his full power in Yule. That's Christmas. Santa Claus, very similar archetypes. Our Holly King is very similar but wears lots of greens and, and mock furs. And the Oak King is being born. And then you come round to the equinox And the Oak King will wound the Holy King and he will go off and die. And on the summer solstice, the Oak King is at the top of his power. But what do you actually do? Well, we will come together as a coven, as a group of, you know, up to 13 people or bigger if we're inviting other people in. And we will enact that myth. A a pretend fight? A pretend fight. And you're surprised when you get into these rituals just how much emotion it can bring out of the participants. I remember we were doing a, a ritual in Glen Innes. Far north New South Wales. That's correct. 100 k's north of Armadale. They have a, a stone circle there. Really? It's a copy of a Scottish stone circle. Okay. How old? Uh, it's recent, but yeah. they've made it. But each of the clans sponsored a stone. So there's 33 stones. I think it was about $10,000 a stone. And they're all carved and they've made a proper stone circle. So we did a ritual in the circle and I was the, the Holly King and I was wounded and slain and dragged out. And my girlfriend at the time and my best friend, were crying uncontrollably. Even though it was just a ritual, it was that much energy. And then there's the feast. There's always a feast. And that's the seasonal food for that particular time of year. I've seen pictures of people in the forest with no shirts on and blood smeared over them and, like, hats with giant reindeer antlers. Does that shtick happen? And if so, is it called shtick? No, it's real mm-hmm. and it does happen, mm-hmm. for especially around festivals like Beltane. Yeah. Beltane's our fertility festival. And back in the day, this monogamy stuff didn't really exist. At Beltane, you'd be jumping the bale fires and you'd run off into the wood. And whoever you ran into in the wood, whether your partner or not your partner, was who you slept with. Now, you can understand why the reindeer horns, the blood and the promiscuous sex would leave you not as, say, the most favoured group amongst Uh, conservative Christians especially. But that was how all the rituals were done in, in a pagan world. There was running with the stag. You had to become the Beltane king. The myths were you would run out and you would slay a stag and you would wear his skin and his horns and run with the rest of the stags and hopefully convince them that you were the the head. That was part of what the myth was. Marguerite, what is it with fascists and paganism? We saw Hitler... And now today we're seeing in Greece the fascist Golden Dawn Party, both drawing on ancient iconography. Is that the word? Yes. Religion beliefs are very easily manipulated for political ends. The Nazis were by no means Christian. They were very much pagans. But pagans aligned with quite a violent and racist 
nationalism. How did the pagan imagery manifest itself? What, give me an example. Well, the use of the swastika. It was not a fascist symbol. It's, it's been a religious symbol throughout various cultures for many years. They weren't interested in religion for religion's sake or adopting mythologies from the past to preserve them, but to actually help in the creation of the image of a new Germany that they wanted to build on the back of the past. And you see that with the rise of the Golden Dawn in Greece as well. So part of that nationalistic fervour is to reclaim the past and be proud of the past. The ancient Greek past. The ancient Greek past, like the Nazis were interested in claiming the ancient Germanic past. And did Franco in Spain use ancient... um... I don't think Franco was as inclined. He certainly used Catholicism. He certainly used Catholicism. And again, it's the same process. You establish and bolster yourself. And if you can manipulate that in a negative way for stirring up nationalism, you have got people on your side. It's a trick of the trade by politicians everywhere. Now, nothing demonstrates the uh, differing worldviews of uh, people quite so much as Harry Potter. For some parents, J.K. Rowling can't be thanked enough because her books, she's got the kids away from screens and reading books for pleasure for the first time. But there is also uh, the other side of the debate. Have a listen to what these crying seven-year-olds had to listen to in America at a Jesus camp. The devil goes after the young. That's why we're trying to help you. We're trying to warn you. And while I'm on the subject, let me say something about Harry Potter. Warlocks are enemies of God. And I don't care what kind of hero they are. They're an enemy of God. And had it been in the Old Testament, Harry Potter would have been put to death. Amen. You don't make heroes out of warlocks. That's uh, the head of NAPLAN. What did you think of that, David? Well, Exodus twenty-two nineteen, I think it is. Thou should not suffer a sorceress or a witch to live. It's already in there. They need to read their book. Yeah. So she was being true to her Christian faith? Yeah, she was. She was. But isn't... Harry Potter, just a fantasy novel? Marguerite, yes, yes or it no? Yes, it is. It is a fantasy novel. It's a, it's a fairy tale. It is. And it's using witches and warlocks and magic to entertain children. That's the level it exists on. Marguerite, tell me about Wicca, witchcraft and feminism. When neo-paganism as an umbrella term became very popular sort of from the 1960s onwards, it coincided with the rise of second wave feminism. And quite often the two sort of dialogued with each other and women saw paganism offered a far more respectful and an increased role for women. And so a lot of feminists were attracted to the neo-pagan movement because of that. The worship of goddesses, for example, women can occupy the role as a priestess, a high priestess. So it, it did have a certain appeal in terms of nicely meeting the women's movement. There's still very strong pockets of feminist witchcraft, magic, paganism today. The other things that, that I believe brought women into paganism is the early church frowned upon menstruation. So if a woman was was bleeding, she wasn't allowed to go to church. She had to stay outside. We celebrate that. It's fertility. If a woman is bleeding, she's fertile. She can have children. And, and those times there are actually rituals that are built around menstruation and women 
coming of age, etc. So it made women feel more welcomed. On our end, God forbid, we're with David Garland, a pagan high priest and president of the Pagan Awareness Network. We're with Marguerite Johnson, professor of ancient history and classical languages at Newcastle University. Up next, how witches have been treated and mistreated over the centuries and to this very day. Marguerite Johnson, tell me about how witches have been treated in history, sometimes revered, at other times feared? Usually feared. They certainly were in the ancient Mediterranean because you couldn't be overt and practice magic in the ancient world because a lot of their magic was cursing people. So if you wanted to have your curse work against someone who was harassing you and you would go and see a witch, of course you'd keep it quiet because you didn't want the person you were cursing to go and get an amulet and do a counterspell against you. The sale in amulets in ancient Greece and Rome and in Egypt was a booming market because magic was so widespread. But as you move into the early modern European period where we see the witch persecutions throughout Europe and Britain, in most of those cases, the people who were accused and killed weren't witches. It was accusing people you had a problem with for some political reason, but also then it it began to take a life of its own because it has a snowball effect of hysteria. People were accusing witches of cannibalism and having sex with devils and demons. It was the fervid imagination of a pocket of Christians who believed the devil walked on the earth and took the souls of these people and and turned them into witches. But most of them were just average, everyday women mostly, some men, uh, some children who were caught up in this hysterical period of time. And the same happens in Salem uh, a few centuries later, uh, began as a silly little game that the, the girls of Salem were playing out in the woods. They get busted for it. And then they just said, oh, 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 uh, someone made us practice witchcraft. And then as David was just talking about the satanic panic of the 80s and 90s, this is modern times, the problem is when you start to accuse someone of witchcraft, be it in the early modern European times, in Salem or in the 1980s, it's a powerful accusation and it takes on a life of its own because it taps into our most primeval fears. How many executions are we talking about back in Europe? In the height of the witch persecutions in Europe, most historians of that period will be conservative and say that records in terms of documents we have would suggest between forty to 60,000 people. There were more, obviously, uh, that we haven't got records of, but 40,000 is an awful lot. And what, burned alive, beheaded? Burned at the stake. And that's where we often get the term, the burning times. Germany in particular liked to burn their witches. England, uh, Britain, they were often hung. And some died even before they were due for execution because of the torture, because they believed at that time, as the ancient Greeks and Romans did, actually by torturing someone, you'll get them to tell the truth. In fact, we know the opposite is true. If you torture someone, they'll admit they're a witch. Thank God we don't make that mistake anymore. So people were often dead, really, or semi-dead when they were dragged out of prison. There was a manual for torturing witches, the Malleus Maleficorum which told you how to torture a witch to get their coveners tortured and burnt yes. and whatever. And in English it's the, the hammer, the of, hammer the of the witches. witches. Yeah, the hammer of the witches. Sadly, the burning of witches, even the decapitation of people suspected of being witches, 
still happens to this day in Papua New Guinea. This year, 100 men were charged with hacking to death seven people, including a three-year-old and a five-year-old, the victims. The accusation of witchery or sorcery tends to emerge when someone dies in a Papuan village and people look for someone to blame. Well, Lutheran pastor Jack Urame is trying to stop this cultural tradition. He's from PNG's Stop Sorcery Violence, and he told IRN's Natasha Mitchell on Life Matters, it's women who are most at risk. I think in a male-dominant society, like in the Highlands where I come from, women are regarded as a lower class, defenseless, because some of them probably may not have males could defend them, you know, uh, when someone dies in the community. Or sometimes they are not powerful enough to uh, protect themselves, and, and that's why they are very vulnerable uh, to sorcery and witchcraft accusation. So there's an a- they're an easy target, in effect. Exactly. Are men also accused? Yes, in the past not, but you know there is a shifting trend now. Uh, some men are now accused of sorcery and witchcraft. What do you think that is? I think uh, young people, uh, you know, today they don't have much to do. Uh, maybe jobless, they're out of school, and so they can't find you know meaningful uh, activities in the community. So they resort to violence at times, and when there is you know a social crisis, for example, when someone dies or when someone is sick in the community, sometimes they believe that people have certain powers in them, and they can cause a sickness or death of other people. Lutheran pastor Jack Urame from Stop Sorcery Violence in Papua New Guinea. And extraordinarily, PNG only repealed the Sorcery Act, yes, that's what it's called, three years ago. Until then, you could use suspicion of sorcery as a defence in your murder trial. David and Marguerite, what did you make of that? It's only um, 150 kilometres from Australia. It's heartbreaking. When you are looking to explain a crisis when someone dies, so you have an emotional crisis, you may believe that the person died before their time. And if you believe that, you will then look for someone who has caused it. So there is a a certain belief system about witches that they can cause someone to die. No different to the early modern European age and the Malleus Maleficarum, where they they say witches can kill people. So the answer to that would be then education. If we can educate Papuans that that's not the case, then they won't feel the motivation to, to kill. But... Isn't a lot of witch-killing, at least over history, calmly, dispassionately done because of a reading of the Bible which is littered with condemnations of wizardry and witchery all over. You need to educate people that the Bible is a sacred text and it's full of stories and narratives and myths that aren't necessarily always meant to be taken truthfully. It was composed in a time when the world was very different. But also never forget that people often use the Bible for very bad reasons. So if you want to persecute someone and kill them, you can interpret the Bible a certain way, accuse them of witchcraft and um, you've got the Lord on your side. It's something that... Our association has looked at Papua New Guinea. Really? Um, Yeah, we've looked at launching education campaigns and trying to see how we could possibly have an effect not only in Papua New Guinea but in Africa. And we've struggled with finding a way to be effective because witchcraft there is not witchcraft here. It's very scary. Well, speaking of uh, misunderstandings, there's nothing quite so misunderstood as Satanism, and we'll look at that next. RN, it's God forbid... People sometimes confuse witchcraft with Satanism, but they're quite different. The Church of Satan was founded in San Francisco in 1966 by a showman and a Wurlitzer organ player, Anton LaVey. 
When he died 20 years ago, he was replaced by Peter H. Gilmore, who's been the high priest of the Church of Satan ever since, and he's today's Voice in the Wilderness. Voice in the Wilderness. There's no belief or spirituality in Satanism. We're carnal, we're skeptical, we are proudly faithless people. Satanism as a philosophy was defined by Anton LaVey as an atheistic one. So we feel that those people who believe in the devil, they are devil worshippers or demonolaters. They're not Satanists. Now, what we invoke in Satan is a projection of the best in ourselves, a symbol of pride, liberty, and individualism. But the, the whole idea of celebrating ego, uh, we are very realistic people, we Satanists. And we understand that since we consider ourselves self-deifiers, we understand that nature is hierarchical, that there's always going to be different levels of people as their own deities. So, uh, you know, we're aware of our talents and abilities, and we try to judge them with accuracy and without trying to create some kind of false image of ourselves as being somehow, uh, we're not megalomaniacs, let me say, that might be just the easiest way of getting to it, that uh, we're actually very rational people, and we can be our own gods, and we can also be beneficent gods, so we can deal with the other people around us in a very charitable and loving way. It's, it's not all about crushing other people, which, which seems to be what folks tend to misinterpret self-centeredness as being. That's Peter H. Gilmore, the author of The Satanic Scriptures and the High Priest of the Church of Satan and shortlisted candidate for ABC chairman. That grab is from a couple of uh, years ago on RN Earshot. Google RN Satan if you want to hear more. David Garland, I'm confused. He says Satanists don't believe in the devil. How does that work? Well, they're trying to remove, as you said in there, that they're not religious people either. They look after themselves. And I struggle with that a little bit. Although Levain Satanists, which is what they get called, are a different kettle of fish altogether. They're called Levain because Levain was the guy who founded them. That's and what? And they're different from devil worshippers. Yes. Who worship the devil. Well. Unlike Satanists who don't. Yeah, and it's, it is that confusing. <laughs> it's, it's a very difficult thing because to be a Satanist, to, to worship Satan, you need to belong to the religions that he's in, Judaism, Catholicism and, and Islam. Because they're the only three religions which mention Satan. That's correct. There are many others who deal with dark deities right back to Egypt. You can be dealing with Set, who many will say is similar to that archetype of Satan. But again, that the idea of all evil deity is relatively new. Um, in the ancient cultures, the gods were good and bad, um, and it just depended on what day you hit them. Marguerite, <laughs> what did you make of uh, Church of Satan's Peter Gilmore trying oh. to put a positive spin on the church? I think Peter did very well there to articulate Levian Satanism because what he made it clear was that they don't believe in Satan as such. They use Satan as a system of philosophical living where Satan is interpreted as an archetype. So it's the idea of Satan and what Satan represents. And so what does that mean is they set up a lifestyle and a philosophical way of living that is hedonistic, that is all about the self. You are the divine one. Can't they do all that without calling themselves Satanists? Yes, they could. They could call themselves anything. I mean, they're complaining about getting misunderstood, that they're not exactly doing their best to no. help by calling themselves 
No. Satanists. If, if they called themselves a different name, they, they wouldn't be in this amount of trouble in terms of the media sort of constantly linking them with the devil. Uh, they, they have no interest or understanding or probably belief in Satan as the devil in the Judo-Christian tradition because it's a tradition they don't believe in. And in history, Satanism didn't really exist as a religion or a philosophy. It was an accusation. It was an accusation. So in ancient times, where we have all the different pagan religions, well, he's not there. RN, God forbid.